Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. If you enjoy today's show, we ask that you would subscribe and leave favorable reviews. Our guest today is Adam Gurry, who is the founder and editor-in-chief of Liberal Currents, which is a web magazine focusing on issues of classical liberalism. So, uh, Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you. I think I would I would correct your characterization. The reason that we went with currents, plural, is because my background is more in the classical liberalism side, but I wanted to sort of do a, a mere liberalism, a, you know, a small L liberalism that involved all the later varieties. Right. Okay. Yeah. I just, I just wanted to clarify for the listeners uh, that liberal is not meant like Nancy Pelosi necessarily. Not necessarily. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Uh, And uh, not that it's particularly relevant, but this is a first, I believe for Urbane Cowboys in that we, a few months ago had your dad, Martin Gurry, on to talk about his book, The Revolt of the Public. So the, the Gurrys are a very uh, prolific family when it comes to these sorts of issues. Very, very prolific internet arguers. So, Adam, we, we brought you on mainly to talk about some of the protests that are popping up around the world. But we just had some breaking news over the weekend. Uh, Saturday night, as I was enjoying watching the Astros tee off on the Washington Nationals, uh, the president uh, tweeted out something to the effect that something big has just happened. And I think shortly after that, I started noticing some of the uh, some reporters starting to speculate that it, it may have meant an attack on or a raid on uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And I just kind of wanted to get your impression on what this, you know, how big of a development this is. And then we can talk about some of the, uh, I guess, the news that have developed since this. But tell us sort of the importance about this raid on al-Baghdadi. <laughs> well, I, I think... Uh, one of the interesting things to me is how big it was when we got bin Laden. Um, obviously, bin Laden was actually personally responsible for the attack on our soil. So a much more directly relevant figure to us. Um, but it has felt in the last three years that a lot of action has been taken on ISIS, but it hasn't led in the headlines quite the way that it did before. So it's, it, it, it's interesting, that at least as a media event, I, I can comment that this does not feel in any way parallel to either Bin Laden or even the old um, Zarqawi, right? He was the, the Al Qaeda in Iraq. When it, this doesn't feel quite up there, even uh, if its geopolitical significance is pretty pretty high. We're we're a little more self obsessed, I guess, at this point in in our uh, media commentary than than outward looking. <laughs> Well, speaking of it as a, a media event, I didn't actually see the president's press conference about it. But what I what I saw was people commenting that he actually started the press conference sort of, I guess you might dare say, presidential and making a strong statement about the importance of this raid and and the defeat of, uh, you know, al-Baghdadi, the, the founder of ISIS. Um, but then he sort of started to ramble as, as he is wont to do and started talking about how we're going to steal, uh, we're going to capture Syrian oil, we're going to 
if necessary, fight for Syrian oil. <laughs> but then he seemed to be, uh, we could talk about that for a moment, but then he sort of be, uh, I guess you could say, bailed out by the media because the Washington Post, they they wrote a uh, report about Baghdadi's death and uh, initially was talking about uh, that, we ca- that, we, that we killed this uh, terrorist. And then moments later, they, re- they changed it to a headline saying that, uh, that marking the death of this austere religious scholar. Uh, I guess talk about both of those for a moment. Like how important, you know, how big of a deal would it be if we actually went in and took Syrian oil, but then also talk about sort of this as a media event in Washington Post, how they how they handled this. There's one version of Trump, uh, you know, one, one model of Trump is he was never really a conserver, conservative proper and didn't really care that much about politics. And so his version of conservatism is what the New York press portrays as the most caricatured conservative. And he just acts like that. And so, you know, I feel like you know, growing up and uh, arguing about the Iraq wars, the idea that it was a war for oil, that was something that conservatives would say, no, definitely not. It's, it's you know, it's about something, it's about security. It's about a lot. It's not about oil at all. But Trump uh, just, you know, he sort of takes the line, right. just sort of sort of like he, he will take, you know, the accusation of fake news and turn it around and say, you're fake news. He'll take the line, you know, well, this is a war about oil and say, you know, yes. The, the line that this reminds me most of from his campaign was the reference to uh, Second Amendment people. I don't know if you remember that, but it was this vague idea that, well, if they come in and uh, try and take our guns, we know what the Second Amendment people will do, sort of like playing to this image of pro-gun people as uh, just, you know, ready to go off at any second, but but saying it as if that was a good thing, essentially. Um, and th- same same thing here. Um, so that's, that's my take on Trump playing at sort of the, the worst caricature of conservatism. And, you know, and he, and he mentioned this idea that he was going to award some contract to Exxon. I'm thinking <laughs> Exxon does not want any part of this. Yeah, I don't even... You know, a contract in some war zone. Right. <laughs> And I was going to say, what about this idea of uh, describe, describing al-Baghdadi as a, a, a austere scholar? You know, is is who comes to mind when you think of an austere religious scholar? Is is he the first person that jumps to mind? No. no. Usually, I think, like, by the very nature of being an austere scholar, you're not starting large state-like terrorist, you know, organizations. The word scholar typically doesn't jump to mind when I think of of those actions. Uh, yeah, that was, that was a weird one. I'd be very interested in, cause that wasn't, you said that wasn't even the original headline. Uh, yeah. Originally he was described in the headline as a terrorist. And then they, I guess, I don't know if they thought, well, maybe that's too, argue- I don't know why they took that out, but they decided that was too much. And I think they kind of overcorrected. <laughs> uh, although, uh, you know, the Washington post headline got a lot of attention, understandably, but I saw like Bloomberg's headline was also kind of weird like that. And the New York Times. Uh, so I don't know, like, I, I mean, like the Bloomberg, the lead or something, you know, made it sound like, like you could almost be forgiven for thinking he was like, uh, the you know, a startup founder or something, you know, like, oh, this is an amazing thing that they did. You know, the ISIS had a D, its own DMV and, you know, was issuing marriage licenses or whatever, which... I don't know. It seems a little strange. Um, it did remind me, though, of, you know, just in terms of like weird obituaries, I went back and I looked at the New York Times obituary for Joseph Stalin when he died. And it was, I mean, it makes the Baghdadi thing look hostile. You know, the 
the the title of it was something like uh, Stalin rose under czarist oppression to turn Russia into a mighty socialist state. And even in the body of it, it's full of all sorts of stuff about how, you know, like, well, Trotsky, you know, had a negative opinion of Stalin, but uh, the people who survived the purges thought he was a genius. (laughs) (laughs) They won't say a bad word about him. I know, right. Yeah. And there was like this weird thing about how like preparation for his 70th birthday party, uh, they started to like, you know, circulate some photos to show that like time, you know, had, you know, even the great Stalin ages, there's all sorts of like weird stuff in there that it, it sort of read like almost like the person who wrote it, you know, maybe was in Moscow and was a little afraid of getting out, you know, I, I don't know what the deal was there, but, uh, so Clearly, you know, this is not just a Baghdadi. The reason I bring it up, the example is, it's just not a, it's not just a Baghdadi thing. There's, there's some strange things sometimes when some of these figures die that. Yeah. Stalin, Stalin makes a little more sense than Baghdadi. Yeah. So there was, there was a longer history there. He was, he was an ally during the war. Um, A lot of American leftists went before the war and before it was sort of not respectable to be associated with them and, and. Uh, were mouthpieces. Um, so in, institutionally, I just mean it makes more sense to me that you would see something like that in the New York Times and at that point than something semi, maybe not praising, but you know, lukewarm about Al Baghdadi, who's just, just, just a terrorist. I mean, yes, he was he was a great entrepreneur of of terrorist institutions. <laughs> he was the Steve Jobs of of uh, Islamic terrorism. Yeah, <laughs> you know, he was. It's like. Uh, Silicon Valley started when there was a breakaway company from from uh, you know the, the, what they call them the traders. Right. They, they yeah. broke away. Well, these these guys, he broke away from from Al Qaeda to to run his own <laughs> uh, scrappy startup. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. There is also just in terms of like this, perhaps is different because you don't have the benefit of hindsight. But if you go like in the early '90s or something, there was this article about Osama bin Laden. And the gist of it, this was after, this was like maybe, the, it was maybe like the early 90s. And, and the gist of the article was, you know, uh, basically Bin Laden was this local kid who had gone off to fight the communists. And then now he had decided to come back and was like, gonna, you know, they, they, they were going to like, he was going to become a farmer or something. <laughs> I don't know. It was like, it was, you know, it was like ex-warlord, you know, makes, makes good or something. Uh, uh, so, you know, sometimes, sometimes there's like a weird perspective on some of this stuff. I don't know exactly know where it's coming from. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. The, the Al-Baghdadi thing just sounds like poor judgment in headline writing. Um, I don't know who they were trying to target. Yeah. I, I like the cynical, but probably wrong, uh, version that the Washington Post was trying to create this blow up because it got way more attention than it would have otherwise, but no, it's probably not that. In the in the in the case of the examples you're giving, though, I mean, journalists are always in kind of a weird position where they have to cultivate these individual relationships in order to be able to get material at all, and that sometimes puts them in weird positions where, yeah, you're talking about Bin Laden before he was the Bin Laden we know, um, just because, yeah, he was a warlord. You you built a relationship with him um, so that you could actually have this piece. Uh, that's but but building that relationship skews your perspective somewhat. 
Yeah, the I found the old article about Bin Laden. And it's anti-Soviet war uh, warrior puts his army on the road to peace. The Saudi businessman who recruited uh, Mujahideen now uses them for large-scale business projects in the Sudan. <laughs> so, you may have noticed uh, that there are all sorts of protest movements that seem to be popping up all over the globe. So there's been a lot of focus, understandably, on Hong Kong and the protests there. Uh, we did a prior episode focused on that with Lyman Stone a couple months ago. But you've also got the Yellow Vest protests in France. Uh, there were a series of protests and riots in Spain having to do with the uh, Catalonian separatist movement there uh, and some of the leaders of the government uh, were sentenced to jail for like separatist activities. And then there's also stuff in Lebanon, in uh, Chile, uh, I think in Bolivia, uh, Ecuador, a few other places. So I uh, wanted to talk about like what the, what the heck is going on? What's the commonality there? There does right. not seem to be much of a commonality in terms of the ostensible rationales behind the protests. Hong Kong one, uh, that's about, you know, there was a extradition bill to extradition to mainland China. Uh, that's obviously a political thing. In France, the Yellow Vest thing, you know, they were concerned about like gas taxes. Spain, obviously, there's a separatism thing. And then Chile is perhaps the... Uh, the most yeah, well, they just had like they raised the fares on the subways, uh, and so they burned down all the subway, the uh, all the trains, you know. So, so what? I, I don't know. Do you have like what, what is your take on what the heck is going on? Yeah, well, I would say my first take is that your timing with getting my dad on was unfortunate because this would have been the perfect time to have him right. on since this is, well, it, you know, this is his exact. Uh, for better or for worse, it seems like it's always the perfect time to have your dad on these days. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's the, it's the, the saying it's just the media environment would be simplifying it, I think. Um, but it's some combination of the media environment plus a globalized protest environment in general. So I, I think you just sort of have to cut, you have to, to slice things a few ways. Um, and I think our conversation online about this was part of why you asked me on, but looking, it, it was interesting to be, I was deep diving into Hong Kong um, when suddenly the Chile protests erupted, but of course there were already other ones going on. Um, and Hong Kong, it's it's difficult when you start looking at one of these things not to start digging into possible arguments that commit you to saying it's very particular to that place, which then right. makes it seem absurd because there's so many other ones going on in conditions that are radically different. Um, I mean, Hong Kong is affluent, but uh, you know, under the boot of China. Um, uh, the the separatists in Spain are, I think, less affluent than either Chile or uh, or Hong Kong, but still not, I would say, among the global poor. But it's it's an ideological, you know, they have this ongoing uh, tension um, with with Madrid, uh, and then Chile is, yeah, I mean, they're they're very affluent. They have a democracy. Um, 
not only are they affluent, but unlike Hong Kong, they've seen strong median income growth. Uh, everyone keeps talking about inequality, but inequality has actually declined over time um, right. on, uh, on comparably to the rest of Latin America um, or, or better, actually. Um, so, yeah, and the, but then you have Le- and you have Lebanon, which is a very low state capacity environment. Um, I wouldn't say it's the poorest of the poor, but it's certainly poorer than the other examples mentioned. Um, and they just have a cluster of very specific political problems. Right. right. Um, so if you, if you try to like boil it down to the particulars, then there's, you would just have to say it's a coincidence, which would be, I think, absurd. Right. I mean, it, you know, it is, uh, before, before the, the latest couple popped up, I mean, I, you could say, you know, there's a lot of countries in the world, different protest movements, you know, happen periodically. So every once in a while, you're going to have a bunch that pop up at the same time. But for me, when the, when the, the Chile one happened, that like obviously a subway fare increase uh, by itself is not sufficient to explain a bunch of riots, you know. So you need you need some sort of yeah. deeper explanation for that. And then once you're looking for deeper ex- explanations that go you know beyond the stated reasons for the protest or whatever, then it's natural to try and say, well, you know, maybe it's maybe there's some common underlying force uh, that is a, a, at least. Uh, you know, setting the stage. I mean, it's sort 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 of like uh, wildfire wildfires and droughts, right? I mean, you know, if you have a big wildfire, maybe someone uh, you know threw a cigarette butt or something. But if it wasn't for the drought, that cigarette butt either would not have started a fire, or it wouldn't have you know gone out of control in the same way. So you're you're creating kind of like a a, a condition that's favorable for these sorts of things yeah, to, and- to break out, even if the specific triggers, you know, might be different depending on the, the place. Yeah. I'd even, uh, so I think I would break this into three things. The, the, tr- the specific triggers being one of them, I think we could probably agree are the most insignificant. And the other two pieces I would say are just to simplify the global and the local and the global is interesting just because there are so many protests going on right now. And that is more what my, you know, my dad's book, the revolt of the public focuses on, uh, which is the sort of media environment um, that's, that uh, fosters uh, makes it very easy for large numbers of people to spontaneously go out. um, And that, that if, if they're against something um, not necessarily for something. So that's why you see a bunch of triggers where, there's a specific fare increase or tax uh, in France or law in Hong Kong that they want to come out against. Um, and that's the trigger that that through social media um, or chat apps or, or whatever the means of, of organizing, um, it, it goes viral and everyone goes out. And, it, and the, the larger numbers feeds yet more people coming out. Um, and there's a, at least for in the short term, a kind of positive feedback that happens. That's sort of the global aspect. There are local aspects too, I think though, um, as to why it occurs in particular places or why some places are more likely to blow up than others. Or if you prefer, if not more likely, because that's, that's like a little hard to parse, um, why it's the Catholic separatist. <laughs> only. Uh, <laughs> only. The, uh, <laughs> the, uh, 
the 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 Catalonian separatists in Spain, not their transit workers that are more likely to be the ones to seize on a particular moment. Um, why it's the left in in uh, Chile that's more likely to be the one seizing the opportunity and why it's the pro-democracy faction that's more likely to be seizing the opportunity in Hong Kong. Um, and, you know, you can drill down even further into what, what particular differences and how they approach it. Hong Kong, as far as I know, is not setting subways on fire and things like that. You know, I mean, and, and in France, they have a time-honored tradition of setting cars on fire, uh, which has less to, which has less to do with any global explanation. That's just something that's been around for, for right. forever, as long as cars practically. Right. Yeah, although yeah, Hong Kong does um, also have its its own unique tradition of protest. Yeah. Traditions, yeah, yeah. That which that was what I was digging into before the Chile thing happened. Yeah, I mean, it goes back to under British right. rule. Um, a lot of a lot of the quite strict regulation on public assembly on the books in Hong Kong were put there by British administrators. One of the big uh, early 2000s protests in Hong Kong, I believe, was a pushback against making it even mm-hmm. more strict. Yeah, I'd say another aspect that sort of squares is the bridge between the global and local explanation is that a lot of protest behavior gets exported. So there's things that get developed that are particular to Hong Kong that get then imitated by other countries. Uh, I mean, there was a sort of viral video that turned out to be wrong, at least in, in its initial presentation about how they were putting out uh, the the tear gas canisters in Hong Kong. They were claiming that they were using liquid nitrogen or something crazy like that, but it was just water. They just had canisters of water that they were putting into, which which, which is which is not actually a Hong Kong specific tactic, but it went viral that the people in Hong Kong were doing it. And there was some thing recently, I think in Chile, maybe actually I think it was in Lebanon where they, the protesters were thanking their compatriots in Hong Kong for having showed them how to deal with tear gas canisters and were, and in the, in reading up on Hong Kong, uh, some of the early 2000 protests or late nineties uh, occurred after some of the anti-globalization protests happened, uh, which obviously, you know, not, not necessarily mm-hmm. ironically sort of by the necessity of the, pro- of the, the thing that they were, protesting anti-globalization protest is a very globalized phenomena but it also had a very particular style to it um so a lot of uh, the hong kong protests this time uh have showcased a lot of art associated with it street art and and online art and various things and a lot of that culture of very artistic protest in hong kong was originally inspired by the way that the anti-globalization protesters behaved, you know, 20 or, or more years ago. So there's there's sort of the local stakes and political factions um, and grievances. And then there's the, the global sort of media environment and, and economic environment. But then there's also what, you, if you want to say, like local innovation and protest, which then gets exported. Um, and more than that, I think, too, because of the global environment, a protest in one country uh, makes protest in a, another one more likely, even if it's on completely unrelated right. topics. Obviously, you know, if people see uh, protests succeeding or, you know, going on in, in other countries, that might make them more likely to, you know, have some sort of similar thing break out in their own country. I, I think it's pretty clearly that that's what happened with the Arab Spring, say, right? Where you started out in Tunisia, the government there got toppled pretty quickly. And then after that, yeah. you yeah. know, all of a sudden you had 
other North African and Middle Eastern countries, you you know, you saw the same thing over and over again in those countries. It, it is a little weird uh, in this case, just because you know. So I mean, if you had if you started out and you had the Hong Kong protests, and then that that was followed by similar sorts of protests in you know, say Thailand and Singapore and you know, maybe Taiwan or South Korea, even if they, even if the subjects of the protests were different, you might think, okay, well, that's, you know, that's a pretty good case for like media transmission or whatever. Uh, Here, it's kind of weird because it kind of seems to be skipping around where like, I don't know, you know, I guess, I guess maybe the people in Lebanon are watching what's going on in, in Hong Kong, but it does seem a, a little peculiar that it would be like, Protests are going to break out in Spain, but not Italy, and then Chile, but not Argentina, or you know, you know what I mean. Uh, although yeah. it's it maybe maybe it's happening a little bit more in some other Latin American countries now, uh, or South American at least. Uh, but you know, the, it the, there seems to be like kind of more of a spotty no, nature of it. Yeah, and this is where I think maybe the trigger is less trivial than it seems at first. Um, so to go back to the Tunisia example, what I find really fascinating about Tunisia is it was in theory set off by this one a person self-immolating in protest of the government. I'm trying to remember what his his vocation was because that was, was also a, was a street vendor. Street vendor. Okay, so yes. He didn't have the proper so license or something. What most, right. So what most people don't know is something like three months before that a different street vendor. So it was also a street vendor uh, did the exact same thing, self-immolated and it just didn't, just didn't turn into anything. Nothing happened. Um, Exact same action, exact same category of person for exact same reason. uh, And it didn't turn into anything. Um, And this is where I think just sort of the mystery of persuasion or, uh, you know, why some things go viral and some things don't when they seem on their face, comparable and and you know facing comparable audiences under comparable conditions um there's something about i mean it's, it's just i mean basically i just go back to aristotle and say there's that ir- irreducible in sense of you have to you have to for the right audience with the right timing you know at the right moment and being the right person to do it um have the rhetorical effect that you want um but i think the, these cases show how elusive and uncertain that really is I mean, why, again, if we assume that that the Hong Kong protests did in fact make protest in Chile more likely, or just more likely everywhere overall, um, why is it Hong Kong protests plus increased fare on subway is enough to get us over the line in Chile, um, but not similar? I mean, there must be something, you know, comparably as, as burdensome as a subway increase going on in hundreds of countries around the world, right? At the same time. So wh- why was it there in that? And I think my answer is that I don't have an answer. I think these systems are complex uh, and what gets the whole party started uh, is very difficult to say. Um, in a positive way, it's what marketers would like to be able to answer scientifically and have been trying to for as long as there's been a professional marketing. It's uh, It's related to... In sociology, there's a study of diffusion of innovations, um, which for, to which marketers are a large contributor as well, because they're very interested in, in, in adoption, the exact same question. Um, 
And the answer is you can sort of t tell big picture um, and you can even tell pretty finely grained uh, stories about the conditions under which things occurred. But as for replicating it, we clearly don't actually know the, the key conditions um, or the key conditions are so complex and many that no one, you know, actor, or even if the one actor is a large organization or government um, can pull it off unilaterally. Uh, so what ends up happening in practice is in Chile, you have people that are unhappy with the government that has existed uh, since the, the post Pinochet from the beginning and just take a wait and see attitude for when they see opportunities to kick something off. And one possible sequence of events is fares are increased. They try and kick it off and, and succeed. Another possible sequence of events is because of the nature of global protests now and their spontaneity. Um, for some reason, just the right number of people get pissed off about the subway uh, fare hikes that they start a fairly amorphous protest around it, which more strategic actors then try to stoke as much as they can. Um, and, and that, the, the actual ex existence, the beginning of the protests is the the opportunity they try and, and seize rather than the initial trigger of the protests. Um, but to me, there's just so many ways you could possibly cut this to possibly explain why it happens that it is, it's, it's effectively impossible. We can learn, it's, we could take away, I think, useful lessons from each case and including each case of multiple protests across, across the world occurring simultaneously. But I think there's a real limitation on how precise you can get in saying, well, this is why this happened now. This is why Hong Kong led to Chile, you know, or, or you know, was a partial cause of Chile. There's a, there's a pretty strict limitation, I think. Uh, quick question about that. Uh, you know, you know, you, you, you mentioned that, uh, these protests seem to be spontaneous, if you will. Um, uh, is there any place, any sort of hot spots that you think might be subject to, uh, uprisings like this in the foreseeable future? Well, when you, when you add, ask it as a yes or no question, I would say yes. If you, if you ask for specifics, I might have a little more difficulty. <laughs> Let me let me drill down on that again because I am a proud uh, America firster. So I want to know about you know the, the U.S. Right? Like, do you think? Obviously, we don't have in the U.S. the same uh, kind of tradition. You know, we don't have the French tradition of protest, right? Uh, or the Hong Kong tradition of protest. It is the case, though. You know, I just finished reading a kind of a little bit odd book by a historian, Peter Turchin and uh called ages of discord and his big thesis is that there are kind of repeating cycles of uh instability and stability throughout history um and one of the ones he says he's, he says that there's like a 50-year cycle where his explanation of it is that you know, when things are calm, uh, you know, people become more open to, you know, radical or extreme ideas. And that leads to like an uptick in political violence and instability. And then people get kind of like tired of that. And they clamp down on that. And so there that leads to a period of uh, stability, relative stability. But then those people, you know, grow old and new people that have never been around the instability uh, come in again and the cycle kind of repeats itself. So it is the case that if you look back in American history, 
you know, the, the periods around, say, 1970, you know, there was a lot of uprest, uh, both, you know, uh, racial stuff and then also, uh, you know, d- different left wing movements like the Weather Underground, uh, lots of anti-war protests. Uh, then in 19, around 1920, you had a lot of, again, racial stuff, but also a lot of labor unrest, uh, riots, strikes, that sort of thing. And then, uh, of course, the period around 1870, you know, <laughs> there was a civil war uh, and then also, you know, uh, lots of other politically related violence uh, there. So um, so that so that would mean, you know, the, the next one would be 2020s, right? So we're, we're due. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, w- w- what is your assessment in terms of like the potential for some, you know, uh, maybe, you know, the, the, the uh, bachelor goes, you know, to the, the, the wrong way or something. And so there's a, a mass outbreak of violence here. Oh, I, I, to, to speak of my dad, he always likes the example from the Byzantine empire where I think it was a horse race went badly and that resulted in an uprise that like resulted in the overthrow of the emperor at the time or something like that. Um, at the, it's sort of like the height of its decadence. Um, right. I like, I like that. The batch, the bachelor picks the wrong, the wrong one. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah, I, I have to I admit I have a soft spot for cyclical theories, uh, mostly just because I don't like linear theories. Um, uh, but I feel like I have to acknowledge that probably both are useful tools and neither are actually correct. Um, but when I like to when I think of a parallel of this time, I think more of the late 19th century, early 20th, when it seemed to many that uh, the institutions of america were not doing their job right rightly or wrongly that is that was the the view um and of the of the movements that came out of that the progressives managed to build essentially the framework that we use today we often talk about fdr but uh they passed four constitutional amendments in seven years and uh you know obviously one of them got repealed uh, eventually but by a later one but um but they built they built the beginnings of the administrative state in this country um i'm not saying that i love the progressives as a an example uh to emulate in all respects but i do think the more optimistic uh vision of where we are now is we're at a moment sort of like where they sprung out of uh where the institutions are feeling like they're not, especially when you look at the dynamic between Congress, the Supreme Court, and the presidency specifically, it 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 just seems like whoever can do things unilaterally does because the branch that is supposed to be uh, doing the bulk of the work, Congress, uh, just f- falls on its face attempting to do so. Um, so the optimistic path forward would be maybe it would take a long time. It took the progressive decades. Um, to lay the groundwork. Uh, but there's another bit of institutional reshuffling um, on a similar magnitude that puts us on the a course for the next you know, decade, decades or centuries, whatever it is. Um, uh, sometimes I, I think that when it comes to stuff like that, part, part of it is actually making institutions that are more effective than the old ones were. It's, part of it is just 
people lose faith in the old institutions and doing something different gets people invested and committed in the new thing now. Um, but yeah, I mean, as, as to the, the short term, I'm sure that we'll see more. What I'm more, what I'm surprised by uh, is that, you know, after Trump, we had the women's March, which was so massive. Um, and we've had several, though not comparably big protests and, but we haven't really seen anything on the right. And I, I, I mean, I guess people would dispute that they would talk about Charlottesville, but that's like, that's well violent. That was very small in numbers. Um, and even though the, the Republicans have had Congress and the presidency, the, the, the narrative of Trump is, is being sort of railroaded by the left seems to be, uh, magnifying have been magnified so much over these last three years that I'm a little surprised there haven't been comparable right-wing protests in March marches. And depending on how the impeachment proceedings go, depending on how 2020 goes, we could very well see that next. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me at all. Uh, and one thing that we haven't really seen here is both at the same time. So you've got, you had the tea party, but not uh, occupy simultaneously. Those are two different events on two different years. Um, you haven't had broad, large-scale protests from each side at the same time. Uh, and that's when I imagine things could go. All right. Ways. Well, uh, I think we'll end it on that cheery note. Uh, Adam, thank you very much for <laughs> joining us today. Thank you for having me.